1: All right, Anderson. Thank you. I am Chris Cuomo and welcome to primetime. We have two breaking stories developing on our watch. First, the January 6th committee said it would not ask nicely and it hasn't. Four subpoenas to Trump's four horsemen, Mark Meadows, Steve Bannon, Dan Scavino and Kosh Patel. Now, to be clear, a subpoena implies no wrongdoing on the part of any of those men. It's just a demand that they must come testify. Now, why them? The chairman of the committee says all four had communications with the White House, or were working in it, or in the days leading up to the insurrection were involved, and we're going to unpack what all that means. Also, we're going to unpack strategies afoot for all of those men to say nothing at all. We also have exclusive new details in the Gabby Petito case. On top of the breaking news that a federal arrest warrant has been issued for Brian Laundrie, the fiancé of Petito, who remains nowhere to be found, we have new details. Now, first on the warrant, it was issued in Wyoming. That's where Petito was found dead Sunday. But there are no charges in it related to her killing. The warrant is for the, quote, use of unauthorized devices related to Laundrie's activities following the death of Petito. He is indicted on one count, of using an ATM card that may have been Gabby's. The indictment, frankly, is unclear on that point. But it does say Laundrie used a debit card that wasn't his to amass $1,000 or more. The FBI says, while this warrant allows law enforcement to arrest Mr. Laundrie, the FBI and our partners across the country continue to investigate the facts and circumstances of Ms. Petito's homicide. And the attorney for the Laundry family put out a statement saying, quote, the FBI is focusing on locating Brian. And when that occurs, the specifics of the charges covered under the indictment will be addressed in the proper forum. But for now, that when is very much an if. We have new details surrounding the hunt. A close source to the Laundry family tells me that Brian left his parents' home last Tuesday without his cell phone and his wallet and that this was not normal. Source also tells me his parents were concerned that Brian might hurt himself. A Northport police spokesperson declined to comment. Now, police found Laundrie's car where his parents said he went to hike at a reserve. Did he go there to hike or to die? Or did he simply never enter and just take off? His parents did not take questions from reporters today and were advised to not give formal interviews to police by counsel. It was the parents, however, that I am told alerted authorities to the fact that Brian did not return home Tuesday night. Now, as for Gabby's death, we are waiting on two key determinations. Where was she found? And what was the manner of death? All we know so far is the death was a homicide, meaning somebody killed her. A body left out in the open, not concealed, that suggests a spontaneous killing, unplanned, that the killer may have left without having time or inclination to cover their tracks. The autopsy, taking more time, suggests death is not obvious. Gunshot, stabbing. If death were by blunt force or strangulation, that too Points to a crime of passion, unplanned, and speaks to someone familiar. So, what are we looking for? What does it mean? Better minds are here to connect the dots that exist so far. Back with us, CNN legal analyst, criminal defense attorney Joey Jackson, and criminologist and attorney Casey Jordan. Good to have you both back. Let's start with the warrant slash indictment. Joey, help me understand. This is week T. The feds rarely ever charge anything like this, let alone for $1,000 or thereabouts. They don't even say that it was Gabby's ATM card. What's the play?
2: I think the play is significant here, Chris. Good evening to you and Casey. I mean, let's understand that what this means is it's under investigation. We all know that. Right. But it means if your indictment, what do we use for indictments? Grand juries. And therefore, in the event that you're presenting the case, we all know that they couldn't have gone to get an indictment. Right. Because of the unauthorized use, they would have gone and presented information that was otherwise relevant to the surrounding circumstances. And here's the bigger takeaway for me. If you notice, it indicates the unauthorized use was between August 30th and the 1st. So if it was between those two dates and they're alleging unauthorized use, there may be some information with respect to when they believe, right, she was gone, disappeared or dead even. So they would have had to present information that gets someone to reasonably believe, right, a grand jury, that indeed that she was missing and or dead at that particular Time And so it seems to me that this is one right. Shoot a drop of a tremendous shoe that's going to drop moving forward with respect to what we're all looking for. I think what they're waiting for are the results potentially of the autopsy so they could present that information and they could have more critical and clear info to present in order
1: to get the indictment for murder. Uh, Casey, let's talk about that with you. This is your area. Um, the questions that I suggest, how was the body found? and what was the specific manner of death? Are those the key at this point?
3: I think everyone is thinking exactly along those lines. The so-called cause of death is what we're most interested in. Again, you, you spelled it out beautifully. I'm predicting strangulation or blunt force trauma, and that would suggest a crime of passion. I I don't think we have any reason to believe this was a long, drawn-out plan, anything premeditated or deliberated. You can tell the relationship from all the evidence was just fraught with stress, and the fighting was escalating and probably got even worse after they were ordered to be separated for a cooling-off period after their encounter with the police. But I think what we just need to understand right now is that the The uh, arrest warrant is just following the money. There could have been many uses of uh, a fraudulent um, use of the credit card. We're assuming it was Gabby's. But where that is, is it still going on? That's the real question. They know so much more than we know. The real issue is we need to get him in handcuffs into police custody. And by issuing a federal arrest warrant. It's like a masterful APB across the entire United States. I think he's going to be cited by people, assuming he is still alive, and they're going to call the police. And police, no matter where you are in the United States, are going to have to put him under arrest. Once he is in the box, in the interrogation room, I think we're going to get answers that we need to piece it all together.
1: Joey, in your experience, and Casey, uh, weigh in if you want, um, the time that Gabby was deceased, how long she's been out there, how big an impact uh, could that have in the ability to pinpoint exactly what was done to her?
2: Yeah, you know, I think that, Chris, as you have pointed out previously, the timeline is significant, right? And so what you're going to do if you're trying to build a case for murder is you're going to look at the timeline that you have laid out with respect to the trip, with respect to when things started getting dicey in August, right, regarding where her whereabouts were, regarding the interactions that they had, that is her and Mr. Laundrie, that were negative, that were, you know, pretty much conveyed by bystanders. So we get to that. But then we get to the other issue which is her missing and then her subsequently found dead. And so when you look and you're piecing that together, I think investigators critical in an examination, a forensic examination, is when you look at cause of death and based upon, not to get graphic, but the decomposition or what have you of the body, you're going to be able to identify when that occurred. Chris, I think that this indictment is big on that particular issue, as I noted before. I think they believe, right, certainly that she was in a position not to consent for him to use the unauthorized card. So if they're believing she's not in a condition to consent, what does that tell you about the forensic examination? What does that tell you about the timeline? And what does that tell you as to their belief concerning his activities, which
1: stem much larger than this unauthorized use? I think that's coming soon. So every time we get a step of new information, we need to analyze it and I will call on you both. Joey Jackson, Casey Jordan, appreciate you and thank you. Always Chris. Good right, to be back here. to the big news on the insurrection investigation. Four top Trump White House officials subpoenaed, which means you come and talk or you get punished. That is what the January 6th committee wants. Will they get it? House panel wants answers on what Trump was doing during the deadly attack and in the run-up to it. Again. Will they get them? How could they not? That's the question. We have a member of the January 6th committee to talk about which way this can go. You know him. Congressman Adam Schiff. Next. The January 6th select committee investigating the Capitol riot tonight issued its first round of subpoenas for witness testimony. They're focusing on four Trump loyalists. Former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, a former deputy chief of staff, Dan Scavino, former White House advisor Steve Bannon and chief of staff to acting secretary of defense, Christopher Miller. Uh, That would be Kash Patel. Okay, so what do they tell us about the direction of the investigation? Congressman Adam Schiff is a member of that select committee and chairman of the Intel Committee. Good to see you, sir. Thank you for taking the opportunity. Good to be with you. Uh, Why are they first?
4: Well, these are four important uh, witnesses. They're all very close to the former president. Uh, Some were in direct communication with him on January 5th, on January 6th. Uh, They are reportedly uh, in communication about how to overturn the results of the election. Uh, uh, Mark Meadows, for example, involved with the Justice Department, trying to get the Justice Department to put pressure on Georgia to decertify the results of the election. Uh, there are innumerable areas that we want to question these witnesses about. And, uh, and these are four early witnesses that we want to hear from and will help us uh, direct our focus on others as well.
1: What does it tell us, though, about the direction of the inquiry? How Trump centered is your focus?
4: Well, I think it, it tells you this. We're moving with great alacrity uh, and essentially no one is off the table. Uh, We're going to determine what went uh, wrong in the lead up to January 6th. Uh, We're going to find out who was involved, who was knowledgeable, what roles they played in the planning, what expectation they had of violence, uh, what the former president was doing. Uh, Among the biggest unknowns is what was going on within the White House on January 5th and 6th at that critical time when our democracy was being threatened with violent insurrection. Uh, So uh, we're not wasting time. Uh, And, you know, these are going to be some of the more visible uh, efforts that we're making, but we'll be conducting interviews uh, as well. Uh, And uh, and uh, of course, we've already made a lot of strides in acquiring documents we need for the investigation.
1: Is the former president on a list of potential people that you will call before you?
4: Uh, You know, I think we have a lot of work to do before we answer that question, Um, and, you know, logically, I think we want to start by getting the documentary records so we know the right questions to ask the witnesses and then ask uh, the witnesses uh, who are really key and central. Uh, and then we'll make a decision about anyone else after that.
1: Do you anticipate one or more of these men saying, I can't testify, I have immunity?
4: Uh, you know, if past this prologue, uh, we can certainly anticipate that some may seek to thwart our investigation. Uh, Certainly, the former president has been talking along those lines. And if you look at uh, all of the obstruction, all the stonewalling of the subpoenas uh, by some of these same people in the prior administration, Uh, I remember, for example, the deposition of Steve Bannon, where he showed up to the deposition. This was a Republican-led deposition at the time with 25 questions he would deign to answer, all of which had been written out for him, not by the committee, but by the White House. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we, we experienced that kind of stonewalling before, but unlike the last four years, um, these witnesses are not going to be able to count on the former president to protect them if they uh, essentially thwart the law. Uh, and uh, I would hope that uh, we can move expeditiously to enforce the subpoenas if that's necessary. I hope it won't be, but if it is, uh, but also uh, that the Justice Department will be open to considering Potential criminal content uh, charges against anyone who uh, ignores the law. Do you
1: anticipate any of them coming up and answering the subpoena but refusing to testify, uh, taking the fifth?
4: I really don't know. I would hope that we can get cooperation from everyone, but uh, I've been at this long enough to know that that's not always possible. Um, But we will do whatever we can to overcome any obstructionism. Uh, That's all we can do, Uh, but we've got some powerful tools at our our disposal and we're going to move forward.
1: Congressman Adam Schiff, early on, but thank you. Thank you. Appreciate you. Another vote on booster shots today. This time it was a CDC panel after the FDA put out its decision. Now there will likely be even more confusion. Why? Let's bring him a former FDA commissioner. And find out what he makes of the government's divide on when the vaccinated should get another dose to ward off COVID, a.k.a. the booster. Next. (laughs) CDC advisors met today to discuss boosters. The arguments were long. The arguments were messy. So, too, are the recommendations. They did agree people 65 and older who got their first two Pfizer doses six months ago should get a booster. Same for people 50 and older with underlying conditions. For folks under 50, they were divided. In the end, they did recommend boosters for people 18 to 49 with underlying health conditions, but not for people whose jobs put them at high risk of infection. Now that's different than the FDA's emergency use decision, which authorized boosters for people like healthcare workers and first responders. Now, these are just recommendations. And the CDC director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, will still need to make her own decision. So, is this okay? Is this the way it should be? Does this inspire confidence? We have former FDA commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. His new book, Uncontrolled Spread, why COVID-19 crushed us and how we can defeat the next pandemic is all about how we avoid exactly this type of confusion. Messaging matters, especially in an environment, an atmosphere, Doc, where you have to be worried about your messaging being attacked. Uh, Gottlieb is also a member of Pfizer's board of directors. It's good to have you. What do you make of this?
5: Well, look, I've seen situations before where the FDA and the CDC disagreed on certain aspects of how immunization should be distributed. But this is the sharpest disagreement that I've seen in modern history between the two agencies. And I think it calls into question whether or not we had the right institutions and processes from the outset. We relied on a process that was invented for largely determining the childhood immunization schedule, where FDA renders a decision about the safety and effectiveness of vaccines. And then CDC holds a separate process to make recommendations to providers on exactly how vaccines should be distributed, largely to children. And in, in the setting of a public health crisis, when you want to send a coherent message between the two agencies, you don't want to show confusion that could sap public confidence. Perhaps we should have brought these two agencies together and reimagined a different kind of process where they work together from the outset to come up with unified recommendations. As it is, the split between the two agencies, I think, creates the perception that the government doesn't really have its act together and there's confusion. And the recommendations ultimately issued by the CDC, I think are going to be very hard for the medical practice and patients to interpret and actually implement.
1: Now, isn't this what happened the last time where... You had the CDC and the FDA, and you had recommendations that were complicated. And then that's why states started making their own determinations about what to do. And that fed skepticism about how much people should trust. Aren't they making the same mistake again?
5: Well, with the initial rollout of the vaccine, CDC came up with a set of recommendations about who should be eligible, sort of a sequential process on eligibility that was very Byzantine and hard to implement. They they designed different groups of people who they thought should be eligible based on occupation mm-hmm. and risk factors. And ultimately, states tried to implement that. It slowed down the distribution of the vaccines. And many states turned to an age-based regime where they just made vaccines available based on age, starting with old, the oldest individuals and working down the age continuum. And that proved to be much easier to implement. And it allowed them to get vaccines distributed much more quickly. Here in Connecticut, where I live, the governor turned to that approach. And it's one of the reasons why the state led the country in getting vaccines in the arms of patients. I think the same thing is going to happen here. This process in terms of who can be eligible for boosters is very complex. It's going to be hard for pharmacies to interpret it and implement it. And ultimately, it's going to create obstacles at the pharmacy counter for patients to yeah. actually get access to boosters. And the people who are going to be hurt hardest by this are those who already face obstacles getting access to care. Yeah, I mean,
1: but isn't this how we wound up with what we see in Florida, where, you know, look, there's plenty of blame to go around. But I'm just saying that things are supposed to be getting better. Messaging matters uh, and messaging has kind of plagued the Biden administration in this regard. And, you know, why would people be wrong to have skepticism? You know, they don't say the same thing. Uh, They don't agree. We're not getting one message. We're getting two. But they're telling us we have to take it. So you got a mandate with mixed messaging. That's a bad combination.
5: Well, I think one of the challenges is that people have lost confidence in public health officials. And coming out of this, we're going to have to reinvigorate public health and create stronger public health institutions. And it's going to be a lot of people who don't want to empower public health officials because the guidance has been shifting. I mean, this is a perfect example where in the setting of a pandemic, if we did adequate pandemic planning, and this is what I talk a lot about in the book, we might create a different kind of process where CDC and FDA are working together in sync from the outset. The Israelis did that with their vaccine boosters. They brought 50 people together, their best experts. They aligned their regulatory agencies and had one seamless process, came out with a recommendation and implemented it. We went through the same staged process that we go through with the pediatric vaccination schedule. That process is meant to have checks and balances, and it works very well in ordinary times when we have time to implement these things, to deliberate them carefully. But in the setting of a pandemic, when you need to move quickly and you also need to align uh, public health officials around a unified message message in order to s- inspire public confidence, you, you might want to have a different process. And this should have been thought out from the outset. And I think as we go forward and plan differently for a pandemic, we might think differently about how we deploy a vaccine in the setting of a public health emergency like this.
1: What needs to happen right now? I, it has been suggested that Walensky at the CDC should meet with the top uh, FDA official and come out of a room and say... We're on the same page. Here are the recommendations.
5: Yeah, I think the most difficult aspect of this uh, recommendation is that it doesn't allow for boosters to be made available to those people who are at significant risk of contracting COVID and having a bad outcome be- because of excessive occupational exposure. So people who are healthcare workers who were vaccinated a long interval ago, people who live in congregate settings like prisons, um, school teachers who are in contact with a lot of kids, The the FDA guidance allowed for that. The advisory panel from the FDA and the authorization from the FDA. CDC does not. CDC is not. And I think that's that's the biggest conflict. I think that's what needs to be rethought. Right now, a a 30-year-old asthmatic would be eligible for a booster based on a pre-existing health condition. But a 64-year-old living in an assisted living facility who might be at risk of contracting COVID but doesn't have any significant underlying health conditions wouldn't be eligible. Or someone who is in a prison, and we know the prisons have been sources of significant outbreaks. So I think it needs to be rethought. The CDC director does not need to accept this recommendation. Um, She can work to align the recommendation with the FDA. So that, that might actually happen here.
1: I mean, doesn't it have to? I mean, otherwise, again, look, I know there's a lot of left right on this. We report on it, analyze it, I'll cry about it, scream about it all the time that a lot of this seems to be about more the, about animus than analysis. But look, you know, if you're the head of a state and this is what's coming your way, of course, you're going to go to your people and say, look, I'm going to have to figure this out for us because this wasn't really helpful. And, yeah, and you look, know, right. I mean, isn't-, isn't that how you have people going it on their own?
5: Look, I think this creates confusion that gives fodder to the people who want to sow skepticism. But this isn't just a right-left issue. I think the problem here is this is a Byzantine schedule in terms of who's eligible that's going to be hard to implement. In order to implement this seamlessly... The person who's working in CVS or Walgreens needs to be able to, to interpret the guidance as they deliver the vaccine to consumers. And if the guidance is this confusing and it requires this many steps and it's hard to assure eligibility, mm-hmm. it's going to ultimately create obstacles at the counter to people who already, in many cases, face obstacles getting access to healthcare. People who can navigate the system, they're going to get boosters. People who rely on the system to be easy, they're the ones who may be locked out here. So it's, it's unfortunate It could create obstacles to the very people we want to make sure are brought into the system.
1: Dr. Scott Gottlieb, appreciate you. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. All right, now to another situation with mixed messaging and some confusion of outcome. What's going to happen on Monday? Are they going to vote on the infrastructure bill? They're going to vote on the reconciliation bill? They're going to vote on both. We have a key member of Congress and she's leading an inquiry on the safety of vaccines for kids. And we're going to talk about the state of play about the wellness of her party and what it means for the president's agenda. Congresswoman Katie Porter, next. Democratic leadership are talking up a deal to save Joe Biden's agenda from their own infighting.
2: The White House, the House, and the Senate have reached agreement on a framework That will pay for any final negotiated agreement. So the revenue side of this,
4: we have an agreement on
1: Who's we? And any finally negotiated deal, that's because there is no finally negotiated deal. The problem is key members like Senator Bernie Sanders, Senator Joe Manchin, they say they haven't seen any framework. And again, this idea that it's all about the Senate, if they could just get past Manchin, what about all this drama in the House? All this with the House still scheduled to vote Monday on the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill and progressives saying that they're out if they don't get what they want on a bigger plan. Let's bring in a key member of the party, Democratic Representative Katie Porter. Congressman, it's good to have you. I want to talk about Monday, but if you don't mind, I'd rather start with what's going to happen with our kids. This confusion between the FDA and the CDC. Look, I know it's science. I know it's better to have it out in the open. I know that it's better than them hiding things. But doesn't it kind of hurt confidence in their determinations, especially when we're waiting for them to tell us about who the people we care about most are kids?
6: Absolutely, and that's why we wrote to the FDA. I led a letter with over 100 um, bipartisan members along with my colleague, Ro Khanna, asking the FDA to be clear with the American people about exactly what the plan is to study and then authorize and then deliver vaccinations to kids. And we got a response uh, last week. We had the briefing this week with the FDA's vaccine chief. And the good news is is that the data is in the hands of the FDA. They describe the plan that they're going to use to analyze those data and make sure that these vaccines are both safe and effective for kids. What we heard is it's likely that if the data are as expected, that the authorization, the emergency use authorization for kids will come as early as Halloween. I know that's what My kids want, which is a candy bar and a shot. Um, But it may come a little bit later into Thanksgiving, but we're going to get this done hopefully in the next few months. What I'm focusing on now is turning to the CDC Mm -hmm. to make sure they have a plan to actually deliver the vaccines. Vaccines don't save lives, Chris. Vaccinations save lives. We have to actually get the shots into arms. And that means the CDC needs to have a plan to how to do that.
1: So is what you're seeing right now with the boosters. Does this inspire you to say to them, hey, you need a better process because I don't want to hear one thing from the FDA and another thing from the CDC like we just did. You have to do better and come up with one set of recommendations.
6: No, that's absolutely something that we talked about with them. We talked about how when the FDA announced they were gonna expand the study for children, this was an opportunity to reassure the American public of how thoughtful and careful the FDA was being in following the science. But instead what got messaged was there's something, something about the vaccination for kids. And that kind of confusion can can make it more difficult to deliver and get people to get vaccinated the second these uh, vaccines are are authorized as safe and effective. So we're planning to turn to working with the CDC. How are they going to get shots in arms? Are they going to be using school nurses and school districts? Are they going to be authorizing pharmacists to give these shots? Are we going to be re-upping the vaccine clinics, the mass vaccination clinics that we saw back when adult vaccines were first rolled out? So yes, I think the CDC and FDA do need to cooperate better and they need to speak with one voice, when it comes to the science, when they talk to the American public.
1: All right, now let's talk about one voice in your party. What is going to happen on Monday? Because, you know, Jayapal is saying one thing, and and look, people have to know, very often the left wing of the party, the progressives are talked about as a minority, not with Biden and this spending bill. He's with them in terms of the priorities and the price tag. But I had Gottheimer on last night, Who's, you know, you know, but he's a centrist, a moderate. He was saying one thing like, yeah, we'll do them one at a time and we'll get them both done. Jayapal saying no, 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 no. The reconciliation bill is getting done or we're not doing them both.
6: What's the deal? Well, look, I've talked to Representative Gottheimer, to Josh about this very issue. And what I've said to him is, Josh, we were elected to represent men and women. We were elected to represent all different kinds of industries. We were not elected just to deliver roads and bridges. We were elected to deliver roads and bridges and better health care and more affordable childcare and a better future for our planet. So doing these things together is consistent with President Biden's agenda. He understands that if you have a road for someone to get to work, it doesn't matter if they can't leave the house in the first place because they don't have care for an elderly relative or for their children. So when we talk about our economy and we talk about building back better, that means building back all of the interconnected aspects of our economy together. And this has been the plan from the get-go. This is exactly what the progressives have been saying months ago. This is what Speaker Pelosi has been saying for months. This is, in fact, what President Biden initially rolled out. All right.
1: So help me with this, uh, because obviously you understand the progressives. You're one of the shaper of that caucus. Um, But for a while it was, it's just Manchin. If they can just figure out Manchin with a little sprinkle of cinema on the Senate side, uh, you guys will be fine. Everybody else on the same page. This is all about the House. And here's what I don't understand. You guys face an existential threat in the opposition party. They will do whatever it takes from little things like McConnell just flip-flopping once again on a key issue, this time the debt ceiling. First time, we'll never let the United States default. Now, we're not going to raise the debt ceiling. That's a little thing for them. They will fight to decertify an election, to overturn an election. And you guys are fighting amongst yourselves? Do you guys get the stakes? Chris,
6: I want to be very clear. What I'm fighting for, what we are fighting for, is the American people. And that means that there are going to be disagreements. What I said to Representative Gottheimer, what I would say to these conservative Democrats is, are you not hearing from your constituents about the cost of prescription drugs? Oh, yeah, I'm hearing about that. Are you not hearing from your constituents about the difficulties in paying for childcare? Oh, yeah, I'm hearing from my constituents about that. Okay, I'm also hearing from my constituents about roads and bridges, so we clearly need to do all of these things. And I think that is what people need to be focusing on. We are fighting for the American people. We are fighting to deliver what President Biden knows our economy needs. That's the fight we're in. Republicans are simply standing in the way of delivering for the American people. And by the way, if those Republicans would step up and deliver for the American people, then we wouldn't have all of this drama in the first place because know, these it's bills not would happen. be getting.
1: But it's not going to happen. Four hundred votes in the house. Their position is opposition, and it works for them. Um, now, for you guys, it's different. What happens Monday?
6: Well, on Monday, we're going to do exactly what the majority leader and speaker ask us to do. So we will get those bills on Monday afternoon. We have not been told exactly what we'll be voting on and how this is going to be resolved. But look, this is what the speaker's job is. She is the Speaker of the House. She has steered our country through complicated legislation and difficult moments before. And I have every confidence that that is what she is going to do here. And I would just encourage the American people to make their voices heard, to let their representatives know that they want their representatives to deliver on the needs that they have. child care, the cost of college, climate change, prescription drugs, lowering the age of Medicare. These are incredibly popular policies across party lines. So you're right, Chris, the Republicans we see in Washington may be the party of opposition on these issues, but the Republicans that I represent want these problems solved. And that's ultimately what should carry the day.
1: So You believe that on Monday, a reconciliation bill will be put on the floor that the Democrats will pass.
6: I believe on Monday we are going to have a clear path forward to continue working on these these bills. I don't know if the final vote will be Monday, Uh. but I think by Monday we will have come together as a Democratic caucus to figure out how we're going to move forward, hopefully in partnership with the Senate. And the president has been working nonstop to do exactly that, meeting with House members, meeting with senators, and trying to deliver his agenda.
1: Monday's a big day. We'll be watching. Congresswoman Katie Porter, as always, appreciate the cogency and the conversation.
6: Thank you so much.
1: All right. Ahead, I want to try to make the most of a moment, right? You guys, witnesses have been coming forward, happening, helping in the Gabby Petito case. Made a difference. Probably helped find her body. Can we do it on another search? A search for a missing 24-year-old geologist, Daniel Robinson. He was last seen in the Arizona desert. Now, we don't have the bizarre aspect of a fiance who comes back and doesn't want to help in the search, but this is almost an equally odd tale. Car found somewhere it wasn't supposed to be. Turns out it didn't just crash there. It drove almost 11 miles. Police go there. They find all his personal effects in the car, even his clothes. But where is he? Daniel's father, David, is here to talk to us about his son, and why this search did not get it done. Next. A lot of people go missing in this country. Some of them don't go reported. Many of them are never solved. We have a lot of attention and momentum right now because of the Gabby Petito case. Let's see if we can use it to help with another case. Of the nearly 90,000 active missing persons case, person cases, did you know that 45% are minorities? A percentage that's likely much higher because of how the FBI groups Hispanics and whites together. The majority of the missing are men. And even though black men make up just 6% of the U.S. population, they make up nearly a third of all male missing person cases. Among them is 24-year-old Daniel Robinson, and this is a very, very odd mystery. He's a geologist, and he was working in Arizona on June 23rd. And he's out in the desert, and he leaves his job site. And that's it. They can't find him. A month later, his Jeep was found in a ravine about four miles from where he was last seen. In the Jeep. Clothes, cell phone, Wallet, keys, all recovered, because all the personal effects were there. Now we have to ask some questions about the clothes. Authorities say they don't think there was foul play. Where is he? Daniel was nowhere to be found. His father, David, has been in Arizona for the last three months searching for his son. David Robinson II joins us now. I'm sorry to meet you under these circumstances, um, but I'm I'm. I'm happy to give you the chance to talk to the audience about it. Um, First, do you believe that the authorities have done the right job in trying to find your son?
7: Uh, First, thank you, Chris, for bringing me on. I appreciate your time. Um, No, I don't think they did enough. Um, You know, the first 24 hours to me is the first crucial, the first 48, 24 to 48 hours, the first crucial moments. And um, those moments wasn't fulfilled. It seems like all of the key discoveries were made by you,
1: a private investigator, and friends who wanted to look. Is it true that your group, let's say, have found the remains of five or maybe six people in your search for your son, but none of them
7: were him? Yes. Um, well, we had uh, seven searches, uh, seven weeks of searches. Um, I created a search um, full of volunteers uh, who worked vigorously out in the desert. We covered a lot of ground around the last places, uh, last spot that my son was seen, which is the well site. Uh, then when the vehicle showed up, uh, we also covered those areas. Um, and, and in those searches, yes, we recovered uh, what appeared to be human remains. Uh, we documented them, picture, take pictures, And turned all of those over to the Buckeye Police Department, including uh, a skull that was found.
1: A skull was found near his car, but that is not your son, correct?
7: That is correct. So Uh, then you get the black box
1: from the Jeep that he was driving. And it turns out, tell me if I have it wrong, that there was some kind of collision. But that after the collision, the car was driven another 11 miles and that there were other signs of collisions, and that once the car was in the ravine, somebody attempted to restart it almost 40 times. Is that all accurate?
7: That is correct.
1: So what do you believe happened to your son?
7: Uh, uh, Sir, that that is hard to say. I've been uh, going over this thing over my mind. I talked to his mother I talked to his siblings, uh, family. We all are confused uh, to what happened to my son. But one thing I do know, uh, my son loved his family. Uh, He would not go anywhere without telling us. Um, He would not um, have a desire to be away from his family. Uh, He would not go out into the desert. He would not try to join a monastery, which is uh, being told by the Buckeye Police Department. And and, and my son uh, mysteriously disappeared. That's all we do know. No enemies. No
1: ongoing mental illness. He wasn't suffering from anything, uh, you know, anything that might cause that kind of duress.
7: Nothing. Uh, My son is outgoing, going guy. He's he is optimistic. He had dreams. He have dreams um, uh, of things he wanted to do in the future. He loved to travel. A matter of fact, um, you know, he had plans for his family to come visit him um, in July. Um, you know, um, I had plans to be here to see his vehicle for the first time. He's proud of that Jeep. And, um, and for, for myself to see that Jeep uh, the first time in the, in the situation that it was in is very devastating for his mother and myself and the siblings.
1: I'm very sorry that you're in this situation. I'm not going to say for your loss because we don't know where your son is. And as you get right. developments, uh, you're going to be able to get in touch with me whenever you want. And we will update <clears throat> and I will make sure That people see the picture now of him, where he was, and we'll put it on social media also. God bless and good luck
7: going forward. Yes, sir. Thank you.
1: If you have seen this man, let us know. We'll put it on social media as well. We'll be right back with the Handoff. All right, we got a big episode on this week's Handoff podcast with a very special guest, although it was kind of a surprise. My mom. You won't want to miss how it is that she wound up on the podcast and what it was that she was there to say. So you're not going to want to miss it. All right, open up the camera on your phone and point it at the QR code at the bottom of your screen, okay? That is going to take you to a link where you can listen. Open up the camera, point it at the QR code, just like it's a menu. Where's the QR All right. code? it should be at the bottom of the screen. I don't think we have it on our monitors. There it is. I got it. I don't see it, but that's okay. I got it. Uh, That's Don Lemon. You he is the uh, (laughs) co-star. He is of the handoff. No, your mom's a star.
8: Your mom's a star. He's usually the main star. He's the co-star. She didn't care. No, we are cameos. This is no respect for what we do. (laughs) So here's the thing. My, My mom has been on my other podcast. Silence is not an option. And she takes over. And when she's on the podcast, everybody loves her. Oh my gosh, Don, I love you. I think your mom and my mom should do a podcast. Forget about us. They're way more interesting than we are. Chris, your mom... Chris's mom turned 90, by the way. She looks fantastic. That, D- she 11. looks younger than you. You're lucky. You better hope she's never She turned, turned never 60. She turns 60. I'm sorry. She 60. looks younger than The nine than
1: you. is upside down. It's, it's a six. <laughs> yes. It's yes. not I a nine. I screwed up. She wasn't... Here's the funny part. My mother wasn't supposed to be on the podcast. Yeah,
8: <laughs> she right. heard...
1: Me talking about her and came down to where I was because she wanted to make sure if I was going to be talking about her, I would push her program. And she came down with a business card and gave it to me and said, read this. Anyway, it's one of those uh, one of the nice surprises.
8: So, but uh, uh, honestly, we talk about the times. What's happening now? Not being able to see family, especially during COVID. Not being able to spend the time with our mothers, especially who are, um, you know, they're getting up there. As you know, you know, I, don't, I know they're going to get mad and say, "I'm not getting old. I'm not getting up there. Don't say that." But it's been really tough. I mean, uh, you've been a little bit closer to your mom. I'm not sure how much you've been able to see her. I've been further away from my mom. I've only gotten to see her once in the past 18 months. I've been a lot
1: more lucky, obviously, when I was sick. And then after that, we were kind of, you know, keeping my mom protected. She's healthy, though. I mean, you know, she she really is uh, doing well. But she was actually with us uh, for the weekend. So that was great. Uh, And that's how she found her way onto the podcast. Um, But it really is uh, turning into um, taking a look at people's reactions to the handoff. I'm glad that... The depth of it is uh, being provocative and evocative for people mm-hmm. uh, of listening to things, thinking about it, challenging, feeling different ways. It's good. It makes it worth the time.
8: Yeah. Yeah. Hey, listen, I got to get to this breaking news, which was your breaking news. Uh, we're going to follow up on involving uh, the Petito investigation. So I will see you soon, my friend. I love Take you. I
0: love you more. I'll talk to you later.